0: Greetings and welcome to Stamper Cinema. I am your host. My name is Andrew. As always, I'm extremely thankful and appreciative for you listening to my podcast. And today, I mean, really, there is no other way to put it. We've got a treat. The the guests that I that I was able to book for this one really. Doesn't need any introduction from me. This guy's resume is incredible, and he's such a gentleman. You are going to love him. You know him as Brad from Adventures in Babysitting. You know him as Kenny from Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. You know him from The Fox and the Hound. You know him from shit. I mean, it it goes on and on and on, quite frankly. Hiding Out, Cheetah, uh, Book of Love, Toy Soldiers. Recently, he was in Jay and Silent Bob Reboot, and currently you can find him on the the YouTube series, The Quarantine Bunch. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor, Keith Coogan. Okay, uh, so before we begin, I just honestly want to say how much of an absolute honor this is to be speaking with you today. I mean, I have- Oh, stop. Get out. Stop. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I've been a fan of your work since, uh, I mean, the, the very first film I ever saw was the The Fox and the Hound. Now, granted, that was two, but I did see it in the movie theater. So that, that's pretty cool. Now, in preparation for this interview, I made a list of a ton of questions I wanted to ask. And normally what I would do is I would, I don't know, keep it to one specific film, but with you, I mean, you have like four or five movies that were absolute bangers when I was growing <laughs> up, right? So I've been talking with my wife and I'm talking to my friends, my buddy, John. And I was like, should I talk about this movie? Should I talk about that movie? Uh, I know I have to ask him questions about Hiding Out because that was low-key my favorite high school movie uh, that that you did. Now, granted, you obviously did Adventures in babysitting, and you did don't tell Mom Babysitters dead. and those were movies where you were a high schooler, but in
1: hiding out, we actually saw you in high school. And don't forget Book of Love, which has the high school and the prom. Uh, and then I did some lower budgeted college ones, a reason to believe, which is a, a date a, a look at date rape on college campuses and uh, life 101 with Corey Haynes, whos basically Lucas goes to college. I didn't actually well, I did go to college. I graduated at 16, so I could work longer hours on sets yeah. and compete with New York kids. That, for some reason, they just all were coming over here, getting putting up in hotels in L.A. and getting these great deals. And it was because they could, they had different work laws or something. So at 16, I took the California High School Provisions Examination and got out of Samo High. I was going always went to public school. So I had a little leg up and was I worked as an adult on Adventures and Babysitting uh, and turned 17 on the set, but flew to Toronto alone at 16 to start working on the movie. Now, as far as I can tell,
0: you got into acting really, really young, right? I mean, we're talking like five, six years old. So um, I guess the obvious question I have to ask is
1: how did you get into it? uh the the um you have to pay your dues my family was kind of in it and 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 in different iterations you had vaudeville you had silent pictures you had early television that my great-grandparents and grandfather had dominated but um television was especially spelling based television the 70s and 80s and Stephen j cannell and uh uh, what's the one for, uh, for Knight Rider? Uh, they also did Battlestar Galactica, the original. Got Glenn Larson, Glenn A. Larson. <laughs> so there's certain producers that if you work for them, then you work on their other shows. And that, I think, is the reason why I worked on a lot of kind of shows that had the kind of the same producers or the same money behind it. And so it was uh, uh, there's a known, you know, you start in the mailroom and you work your way up to somebody's assistant. And then you're an assistant broker. Then you're a broker. Then you think and then you're controlling a hedge fund. So. There is this path that you take, and so I just started at the bottom as a extra, uh, a stand-in, I think, and it was one job I didn't get paid on. And so my mom was like, mm, "We never got, you know, I never got paid for like a stand-in job." Mm. And I think it was McDonald's, and um, the McDonald's directors was like, "Well, well." Um, I got hired for four more McDonald's after that that you know ran with McDonald's and stuff. This is in like 1976, and that's when I got my union card at six. And then did a lot of commercials. And then after that, you start doing getting roles on TV, on guest appearances, on TV shows like Laverne and Shirley was right. They won uh, Mork and Mindy and Little House on the Prairie and the Waltons and um, a lot of great 70s television, Love folk, Fantasy Island, Eight is Enough. Uh, and so that career was building. And then you start doing after school specials and movies of the week where maybe you're the star um or one of the higher leads and that is supposed to build any do a series i did the waltons for a year and so was, and, and the whole time since i was about eight i'd say i understood movies was the pinnacle and i was striving for that mm-hmm. and i'd seen the kid by eight i understood who my grandfather was what relationship had, that had into the business i was working in and um and my mom wouldn't let me capitalize on the coogan name I acted under Keith Mitchell for 10 years in television, earning the right to the name after my grandfather died in 84, um, which really knocked our whole family on its heels. Um, I changed my name to Keith Mitchell Coogan in 85, didn't book one job. And then 86 happened and I got like, I changed to Coogan. And I got Silver Spoons, Growing Pains, Just the Ten of Us, uh, Raising Miranda, which was a short series, and then uh, Adventures in Babysitting. Now, I'd also been reading, uh, auditioning for features since, you know, seven or eight years old, and can remember reading for E.T., Goonies, Gremlins, um, uh, What Else, My Gosh, uh, Christmas Story, Stand By Me. everything you you audition really for everything man uh just listening to that
0: a couple things one you and Corey feldman had countless paths crossed during those early years right i mean Mm -hmm. that's it's freaking wild i uh I, i i had no idea it was that extensive uh but two you literally had like an entire career long before you ever did adventures in babysitting
1: but as my family stated well not a film career um, <laughs> i had a foundational television career which at that time couldn't be uh, transferred the currency couldn't be cashed in for a film career bruce willis hadn't moved from moonlighting into diehard yet and become the highest paid actor at five million dollars for diehard so it was i used the puberty and the transition from kind of younger kid actor in tv to maybe a teenager which is Ironic, because my grandfather's career ended when he turned into a teenager. Oh, he's growing old. He's not as cute. And until John Hughes came along and made a market that wasn't exploitive of teenagers. Now, you had exploitation films in the 60s and 70s, the blob and stuff that attracted teenagers to drive in movie theaters. These are B-pictures, and they're only meant to be quick, make them quick, sell them quick, Roger Corman style of filmmaking. Well, in the 80s, they found out that these kids have... um. They're liquid. They've got cash and they're spending it on Teen Beat and Tiger Beat. And they're going to see movies and they're buying toys and and comic books and all that stuff. So that's, I think, why you saw such so many big movies uh, geared towards kids in the yeah. 80s.
0: Like the 1980s for teen movies and specifically kid actors was like the equivalent to the 27 Yankees. So much talent, uh, whether it was you and or the Corries or... Molly Ringwald or um shit, the well, the entire brat pack. I mean, you can just go on and on. So
1: there's like this junior brat brat pack and you know, Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles and, and Pretty in Pink. And then there's like the Corey R years where we're all just we just are hitting fifty. I'm fifty one now. <clears throat> but Happy we weren't old enough to be, thank you very much. Um we we were freshmen while the rest of the guys were seniors. So we had lower profiles, lower budgeted movies. No one banked too much on uh, uh, Christian Slater, I think, River Phoenix. These are good examples of, I wouldn't say tentpole movies being built around them, but really solid movies with good box office return and Oscar potential and Oscar nominations, especially for River Phoenix. It's funny, me, Will, and Corey, We got because they haven't stand by me, me and Will have worked three times together, Toy Soldiers, Python, Mm-hmm. 130 feet of uh, terror. <laughs> and uh a Tales from the Crypt episode we did. And then Corey Felvin and I did I was a hand model for him on a Mattel commercial where he'd like play with the toys and then for the insert on the train I came in while he's off at school and I would like push the toy around. So my face wasn't on camera, but I was pretending to be Corey's hand. This is when he's four and I'm five or six. I think I'm just a year or two older than Corey. And then um Then we did The Kid with the Broken Halo, which was a Gary Coleman uh, movie of the week. And uh, we did the Oscars together. And I also got a part on um, A Tale of Two Corys, which uh, Corey wasn't in, uh, but he did some uh, producing on that. But I still had an audition. <laughs> All right. So you mentioned the Oscars. See, I couldn't
0: remember if that was just something I made up from like my childhood memories. But, but I do. I have like vague memories of you and other like kid stars like out on stage. And I wasn't sure if it was like the, the Oscars or whatever, but you were on stage and there was like a song and dance number. Is that correct? Am I on the right track? Yeah. Oh, so that did happen.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's the Young Hollywood number from, I think, the 88 Oscars. And it was a year they didn't have a host. It was um, family that year. So you'd have um, just father, son, or husband, wife, and stuff introducing each award. And they had a 12-minute dance production number with Young Hollywood. 80% of us were Hollywood progeny. So you had uh, Trisha Lee Fisher and Jolie Fisher. You have uh, myself with my grandfather. You had Tyrone Powers Jr. You had um, uh, Tracy Christine Nelson. Uh, So a lot of us, uh, you had Carol Burnett's daughter. You know, all of us had kind of family in the industry and had our own careers. And they were pinning on it. Ricky Lake was in that, uh, uh, Patrick Dempsey, uh, Chad Lowe. It was also the same year that the Oscars famously did the Snow White number with Rob Lowe. So, the only other musical number that year, other than the Rob Lowe fiasco, was the Young Hollywood number. So we get kind of obscured by the uh, other press, but it was uh, uh, choreographed by Kenny Ortega. Oh, uh, Hocus Pocus and
0: uh, shoot, I can't remember some other uh, musical. Yes, uh, yes,
1: he did the uh, This Is It. The uh, Michael Jackson biopic, which is amazing. So, but we'd all played little brothers, so the younger crowd had all worked with the older crowd. I'd done a movie with uh, John Cryer. Someone uh, so worked with you know, see, everybody was like, I think C. Thomas Howell and Will Wheaton did something. I can't remember. So everybody had like worked with one of the you know with each other because I don't know. In, you know, there's in family entertainment, um, and when you do a lot of TV, it's amazing. I'll go back and I'll look. I'm watching um, Shit's Creek. S-C-H-I-T-T, Schitt's Creek. And I see uh, Joe, the guy that owns the garage, right? Mm-hmm. Motorcycle jackets. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Johnny, how are you going to pay your rent? Uh, love this guy. I realize he does an adventures in babysitting. He's the guy that walks up to the mom at the party and goes, hey, are you so-and-so? And she goes, "Now you've mistaken me with someone else. Oh, my God. I can't believe I missed and that. And they even shot a whole running gag of him. Every time they cut to the parents at the party, he's in the background asking someone if they're someone and getting them wrong. And, and he's drunk. And he goes, are you Bob? Something they go. No, I'm not. And he goes, ah, whatever." And at the end, she goes, hey, are you that? And he goes, "No, you have the wrong person. So that was a payoff. But he's in Sh- in Shit's Creek. And of course, eventually we be singing Bradley Whitford and um, Anthony Rapp and uh, so many people that still work. <laughs> Speaking of Anthony Rapp.
0: Now, this is something I read, but is it true that you guys uh, swapped roles?
1: We did for the screen tap. <clears throat> and, um, you know, that's a, what do you call it? That's a tr- that's a rehearsal exercise anyway. When you're preparing for a part, it's great if you've got a scene partner willing to do it. In the old days, we did this at auditions. You walk into an audition, you see everybody else going up for it. And you go, hey, you want to read lines? So inevitably, you each have to take turns playing the other role. Mm. It's just something that was done. And for them to film it, I think... I mean, I mean, it was under the same. It was a screen test, so they like set up, you know, a car and a little bit of a subway, I don't, know, subway set or whatever it wasn't really a set. The front door for when Bradley Whitford comes and asks, tells the babysitter he can't ba- uh, take her out. It, uh, yeah, when they switched, you could see, inst- and you could feel, and by watching Anthony play me, and having him, you know, watch him watch me play him, mm-hmm. <laughs> very confusing. Um, we it helps you double down on who should be who. So you go, can they just be swapped? And you go, no, they can't. Inherently, there's something that Anthony is better at performing Daryl than Keith is. Um, And so I think that's, it, it's just, it was a neat experiment. I would love to see that film.
0: Yeah. Now, one of the recurring lines from Adventures in Babysitting is, you think? And I was wondering, like, when you guys were on set, did you ever try to, like, you you think each other um, like see who delivered the line better. I mean, because it seems like virtually everybody delivered that line.
1: No. And I think it's cause, uh, well, I, I think everyone's just doing their own, um, their own take at the moment of it. So uh, Daryl says it, you think fine. Then you have little Maya being a smarty brat. saying, you yeah, think, and it's just cute. Um, so uh that's keeps showing their kind of connectedness, which i love that their relationships you just buy you buy the, and it's so cute when daryl is like you know you've got to be shitting me can i swear sorry um, absolutely and uh, she goes um you know lisa goes watch your mouth and you go watch your mouth you gotta be shitting me and maya goes don't worry don't look down like i'll take care of you she's like stay behind me She's always this little heroine out there in front. Um, so there's these great little relationships that every character has with each other. I love that.
0: Now you mentioned swear and and please, goddamn it, swear. <laughs> um, but uh, and and you know and and forgive me, we're kind of going all over the place, which I think is great. But I have to mention this: two or three of uh, my my favorite four letter bombs were actually delivered by Hugh. Uh, like one hiding out. When you're – what was it? You were uh, talking about spectrums, and you were like, on one side, there's homo, and the other side, there's hetero, and then there's me. Way the fuck over here. I I love that. Uh, The delivery of fuck is just so great.
1: (laughs) The hard part was that you had to buy that Patrick didn't recognize his own cousin. So he's so – you know he's such a horndog and hormonal and straight and homophobia was accepted apparently if you look at Adventure the babysitting hiding out in other movies monster squad at the time uh, if you have to look at other movies at the time it was okay for a bad guy or a character to to be homophobic in, in and if so for character's being bad mm-hmm. at the moment i guess and so he's being wrong patrick's wrong he's being scared he doesn't need to be that's not his cousin's intent he doesn't even know it's his cousin and so he's just very determined to let this person know no you're not getting in my pants way the fuck over here (laughs) that was i love that quote but yeah i was proud of bad language you know it's seven i'm 17 Mm -hmm. i can barely see these movies you know what i mean um and uh, you just feel like you're getting away with something. Let's talk about the
0: uh, statutory. Uh, oh, with uh, John Pryor. Or are you talking about like. Um, statutory
1: rape with anabesh Gish and yeah, John Cryer? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. It's a situation that at least, thank God, uh, Maxwell Hauser is like, wait a second. I understand this chemistry and you're a very bright young girl and I'm pretending to be a younger man. But obviously this can never happen. So at least, you know, there's other movies where I mean, even in Adventures of Babysitting, Daryl leans over and lifts Brenda's jacket to look at her boobies or or the, you know, in her sweater. I'm like, mm-hmm. that's not acceptable behavior either.
0: No, but I mean that it seemed pretty common, like right in the uh the nineteen eighties. I mean how the uh the the scene in Breakfast Club with uh Judd Nelson under the desk. Sixteen
1: candles. Sixteen candles, yeah. They cut that poor girl's hair. And then take the took advantage of her in a convertible. This is terrible. She doesn't even remember what happened. Mm-hmm. It's just terrible. And every character celebrating it in the movie that everyone knows that's just really awkward to watch right now. Yeah,
0: yeah. And that was a uh, that was a John Hughes film. Oh, uh, Connection, uh, Adventures in Babysitting. That was a yeah. That
1: was that was a Chris Columbus film. It was his first film, right? Yeah, it was his directorial uh, debut. He'd written Gremlins, Goonies, and Young Sherlock Holmes. I think he'd done story on Reckless, Aiden Quinn film. Yeah, this was his his directorial debut. He's done good.
0: <laughs> uh, you, you, you guys did good. He he's had a he, he's had a pretty okay career. Now, regarding Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter Is Dead, another great. Uh, well, shit, it wasn't a f bomb. It was a it was a, a, a shit bomb um but it was a scene when
1: your brother had uh had fallen and you yeah and i should have been there i mean not with him but i should have you know on the roof but i should have been with, been there like reading green eggs and ham or some shit like that yeah <laughs> <laughs> or eat shit i appreciate you eat shit how about my improv bug when my pot plant falls off of the windowsill So I huff up the stairs and can barely make it upstairs because I'm such a weed smoker. Kenny makes it to the windowsill and his weed plant falls over. And he's like, fuck. Totally improvised because the thing fell. Um, (laughs) And it was a plastic pot. And it's only falling two feet because there's a little roof underneath the window. We're actually up in the real bedroom. It wasn't a set. So it didn't fall all the way down to the sidewalk because there's a thing right out the window. It makes no sense. You see us crawling out later when we shoot the dishes. So... Uh, they just dubbed in that sound of a of, uh, of a actual potted plant, like you know, ceramic one, <laughs> crashing. <laughs> and they let me keep. It. Now I don't think they do the K. It's just fuck. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think that slid by the MPAA too. Now, also, they, to make sure they watered down "lazy little prick" to "lazy little punk," and that was done before anything. That, there's never been a version where the movie had that not cut or looped over. Instead of Liza, we said, holy shit, what are you queens doing on our our car was originally, what are you queers doing on our car? And we did loop over to what are you queens doing in our car before the movie was even rated. We covered a lot of that stuff because we wanted a a PG-13. We wanted a wider audience. But the language, once again, like Adventures of Babysitting, is the most dangerous thing in it is the language, I think. Because there's no real sexual situations that won't go over the head of a kid. Don't tell mom's a perfect example of it. as you grow older, you understand more and more of the movie every time you watch it.
0: Yeah. So let's see. You had adventures in babysitting, and then you had Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter is dead. Obvious babysitting connection, right? And so you shot Adventures when you were 16 and what? Like twenty for uh, babysitters dead, so I guess like as a teenager, what was it like having two of the biggest female names in the game at that time, in Elizabeth Shue and Christina Applegate, you know, appearing on
1: on screen with them as your babysitter? Well, couldn't be two better babysitters <laughs> or young professional actresses that are um, carrying eight. $10, $12 million of a studio's money um, and uh, doing it successfully and financially successfully and endearingly. You don't spot a false moment in either performance. Um, and I and I know I was there side by side with them and with John Cryer and uh, Sean Aston and Will uh, that they put a lot of work into it. I didn't. Playing Kenny was the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. You just want me to be selfish and completely narcissistic and not care about anybody? Dude, I got this, man. <laughs> <laughs> so easy. What was the most challenging role? The most challenging role? Yeah. Wow. Well, I've gotten away with really not having to cry on screen since I was a kid. And that's, that's great. <laughs> I like comedy yeah i could fake cry i guess and that's all that's required of broad comedies these days do you really believe will ferrell's crying when his character's crying no it's comedy relax everybody um i do have the awareness and enough i've learned enough to know what i don't know about acting in terms of technique and history of it and um i'm i'm comfortable enough where i'm at i still continue to learn and grow but the industry's changed where they really expect you to have a brand and a certain character that you play and i'm more character actor where i'll kind of i could be the nerd and eventually the or be the stoner and don't tell mom or whatever Um, i tend more towards the nerdy insecure characters um i think that's more relatable to people and then funnier because more people identify with somebody and goes oh i do that too and I can get a laugh. I know. I think I know when I can get a laugh. And maybe that's my downfall. (laughs) But when I'm on a set and the the process is weird, there's the audition process, which is entirely different than working. And when you're working, you're doing something on set, usually shot out of order, that they'll piece together from dailies, cut it together. God knows how they're going to cut it. It's going to be seen six months to 12 months from now by people sitting in an audience where you have no feedback from them. It was done in a dark cave and then will be shown under the light later. And I had learned, I don't know if you call it safe or a bag of tricks or gimmicks, but I think I know things that I can get a laugh. Every time I think I know how to make that crowd laugh in the theater later. And I just need to mechanize that more financially these days. I still work. I love it. But um, I'm not... A Chris Pratt or a Chris
0: Pine or any Chris's because you had mentioned Sean and will uh, toy soldiers that that seemed like an entirely different type of animal. You played Snuffy and obviously there was a lot less comedy in that role. I mean, granted, Snuffy was still like kind of kind of funny. Right. Uh, I mean, there, you know, on one hand, right. You were a little mischievous, but on the other hand, you know, you'd raise your arms. I surrender. Um, So I guess what I'm curious about is how did you how did you handle that type of role?
1: He I uh, prepared him as rich, white trash. Uh, He's anti establishment. Remember, there's a reason all five of those kids are in the last ditch effort for rich parents to stick their kids in preparatory schools and boarding schools because they can't even deal with their own kids. So I took that and I turned it into a rebellion against the school against the terrorists, uh, against anyone who didn't agree with us five and our plan. Um, And But he will spit at the terrorists, but only behind their back. They point a gun at him. He's the first one to raise his hands and chicken out. He knows how to play the game. Um, they want to see you terrified, then be terrified in front of them. Give them that power and then figure out a way to trick them later by poisoning their coffee. I don't know. There's a lot of... <laughs> I, I like that um, I got to work on second unit, um, when I take the coffee and put it on the roof or whatever, uh, Mickey Moore directed that. And he was second unit director on Toy Soldiers. He directed the, um, the truck chase sequence in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, hello. And Dan <laughs> Petrie was not abandoning the second unit because they were shooting first unit stuff. There was no dialogue in it, but they had to cover a lot in 90 days to shoot this kind of A-level picture action film. So he had both units going at the same time. So he'd run over from a set in the school gym of like the headmaster's office where they're shooting the finale. And then he'd run over and watch Mickey Moore call, you know, action on me, put lighting a cigarette and putting this little gimmick or whatever. And um, that was a neat little moment. Plus, I got to work with Arlie Ermey, Mason Adams, Louis Gossett Jr., Denham Elliott, Andrew Devoff. Come on.
0: Yeah. You've worked your entire career with absolutely amazing amazing people and such incredible talent and this film and this film seems kind of like like a, like a footnote, but I also grew up a fan of your co-star in uh, cheetah and ah. uh, uh deacons uh, she was one of absolute favorites in the 80s but again, you you've, you've literally worked with everyone
1: oh yeah and then i did a movie with uh, jay underwood so i was able to talk and then i was really good friends with chris young who had done great outdoors with um her and so everyone did seem to know each other and work with friends i I was friends with the group that had um scott grimes and uh uh, gabe jarrett my my best friend since growing up Uh, mitch from real genius um i grew up with jake Busey. Uh, So it is a really, it's a, uh, LA is a very, very large city, but Hollywood's a small town.
0: And how is Mitch from Real Genius doing? He's amazing. He's grading
1: grew up on two dollar late fee. Uh, you should reach out to him. Uh, he's uh, amazing. He's uh, still working. He's working more than I am right now, so I'm quite jealous. Uh, plus, he's got a, a second career as an ASL interpreter. So I really? just he's amazing. I have no second career. It's do or die for me. It's diamond hands. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, well, I started today in preparation for this interview. I I actually started watching on YouTube the the Quarantine Bunch. And that's that's a lot of fun,
1: seeing you all, like all you guys on Zoom. I don't know what your expectations of that show is, but I hope you like anti-comedy. <laughs> I hope you like Tom Green, Andy Kaufman. I hope you like Too Many Cooks because the quarantine but you have to stick through and watch the entire thing of quarantine bunch we didn't even know where the show was going and and it's also almost true a lot of it because i panicked it's the beginning in march april at the beginning of the lockdowns and stuff we're all gonna die. i i mean this is how i was and I, I also got quite drunk while we were shooting it so please yes watch the quarantine bunch on youtube <laughs> You can go to thequarantinebunch.com as well. They have a fun website built for it. Lucy Deakins. Sorry, her her name just came back to me. Oh, yeah. I love Lucy. So she, you know, she, I don't know. Her attitude towards acting was take it or leave it. And she's already quite successful while we're doing cheetah. And yet she's incredibly focused on school. She goes now, I don't think, you know, Hollywood isn't stable for everybody. So you gotta have something to fall. Her fallback is gonna fall up as a professor. I'm totally sure she followed through on that. It was rough for her because she's allergic to cats. And so the cat, the allergy from the cheetah, which by the way, the cheetahs were from the San Fernando Valley. We flew them out to Africa because they were trained. Um, they licked her face. Oh man! And her face puffed up and oh, swelled man. up, and so we had to take precautions to protect her from the allergies on the cheetah. But the, they were sweethearts; totally great to work with, and she was incredibly brave. We flew uh, from Nairobi out to Lake Naivasha, which is where the little house was. It's the same house that's in Out of Africa, and it's on this little crescent island in the middle of the largest freshwater lake in uh, Kenya. And uh, we, a lot of the crew, took trucks that took like a three hour drive to get to this location and we're going to stay at this we're going to camp there for five weeks in tents as a safari and still make a movie living out of tents and we flew in a very tiny cessna just me and lucy and the director and the pilot and um she was horrified and i'm sorry lucy i took a polaroid of her this white face and her eyes like this and white knuckles and um i am so sorry lucy i lost the polaroid so don't worry about that it's not out there anymore uh but uh we settled in and um you know we had these tents and little it was literally like safari out of out of africa because the equipment is very rugged and wood and canvas and it's it's not really dated it feels like you could be living in any century uh and then you're surrounded by zebras and lions and hippos and giraffe. I mean, it was it was ridiculous. And so Lucy was very stoic. We the drinking age is different in Nairobi, so we we got we got we got drunk <laughs> on uh, Malibu rum. Oh man! <laughs> Once one time, early on the island. Hey, we made it. We're alive. We didn't get eaten by lions. And uh, and that was it. That was our fun.
0: Now, like growing up and granted, um, I'm 41, I'm 41, but I don't remember in the, in the eighties really ever, ever hearing any, any crazy Keith, Keith Coogan stories, uh, of, of, of you doing anything wild or like crazy. It seems like you didn't really get caught up in some of the, the chaos, or did you just do a better job of keeping it quiet?
1: Yeah, I didn't, um, when i had a great year in 91 with uh don't tell Wong babysitter's dead book of love and toy soldiers all hit theaters that year three and it's new line cinema and tri-star pictures sony basically and um warner brothers uh and then the studio film stopped and i just did art films and low budget stuff and and the paychecks are pretty good on some of them but the movies are terrible so I did learn don't really take a job just for the money but I made some good money um, and uh, you know whatever the side of the style the thing me I don't know what's going on I just failed to book any other bigger roles I don't know if there was room my agent said you have to either lose 10 pounds or gain 20 hmm. you're not a hero you're not the lead you're not the romantic lead but you're not fat enough to be Jack Black and that kind of shocked me. So I just have stuck to my guns. I I don't know. I, if I get a chance to play a part, I will interpret that. I, of course, love direction. So many things, that, like, uh, don't tell him on the series that if it wasn't for Stephen Herrick, I still to this day wouldn't have understood what I had to do, uh, what was needed. And I didn't, as we're filming it, I'm kind of a little lost. And Stephen just provided, he goes, here's what we need here. But I just have so much fun doing it that I will, you know, it's tough. auditioning and not getting jobs is definitely tough on the ego. But working is so great that it makes up for it. So
0: you you mentioned that, and I listen to Rob Lowe's podcast. He has a really good podcast, and it seems like he to this day is still just pissed off that he didn't book footloose and i'm just curious if there are any roles that you're like damn it i can't I, I i can't i hate that i didn't that i didn't close that one
1: would you have rather i did honey i shrunk the kids instead of the cheetah
0: hmm i'm trying to figure out who you would have played in honey i shrunk the kids i mean i guess honey the shrunk honey i shrunk the kids is definitely the, the bigger picture that was oh. in love with her do, do you remember his name french class um let's see I don't. I don't remember his name.
1: Then maybe I made the right choice. Fair enough, yeah. And nobody remembers Cheetah anyway, but thank you for... They did play it in prisons. It's outdoors, it's kids, it's rated G, it's not going to rile anybody up, you know? Um... But I had—you uh, don't have a lot of choices. Uh, you answer the phone. This is Keith. I'll do it um, <laughs> because everything's an opportunity, and you can learn something, meet people, you know, make connections. Work begets work, and if it's bad and no one sees it, then it's a line in your resume, and uh, that's—I've never not met someone great on bad projects. <laughs> I'd shoot myself if I didn't at least
0: ask if. If your grandfather gave you any, like any great advice when you were, when you're growing up and you were, when you were starting to act, because I mean, granted, I didn't really, I, I didn't discover the kid until much later. You know, I knew your grandfather as uncle Fester, you know, and, but I was just kind of curious if there was any, if he, if he did, uh, was he, did he encourage you to get into the, into the business? Uh, did he have any, any advice or anything that kind of like ever stuck with you?
1: Mm-hmm. I didn't encourage me to get into it uh, encouraged me to okay. be a professional if I was going to do it and it's know your lines, know your stuff uh, be original, be funny steal the scene, he did teach me a few pointers on how to steal focus um, he was good at it and uh, I think toy, a lot of toy soldiers um, was just me trying to steal focus from Sean and Will every take, every scene and watch this I would tell Will, I'll go watch it. I'll totally steal this scene. They'd roll and I'd pick my nose and wipe it on Will's shirt. And you'll see it in the back of a shot somewhere if you're watching for it. So he, it was more, um, I didn't get any really insightful advice because uh, he was more rival. He saw me as a competitor to his throne because, you know, he's the guy in the family, the famous the kid actor thingy. And then, yeah, he, um, he didn't really own Uncle Fester as much as he did uh, the kid. That, because of the worldwide fame that the kid brought. Right. And uh, so by the time I was five or six and I hadn't been in a worldwide blockbuster, he'd already won. There's no way I could beat him. But he just encouraged me to be solid, be pro, focus. Um, He never gave me acting advice, never helped me out. As a matter of fact, I brought him Tom Sawyer. They were doing Disney was doing a new version of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. And he played Tom Sawyer before. (laughs) And I uh, said, hey, I got this sides for the thing. And he goes, "That's yours. You do what you're going to do with it. I was kind of put off by that. And I didn't get it either. I think Jonathan Taylor Thomas got it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Fox and the Hound. Last last question now. uh, So how long? I mean, what was it like working on a Disney, you know, animated film? Like how long did you work on that? A
1: couple of years. And I hadn't done any other voiceover before or since. But I know that the voiceover session was typical of all voiceover sessions. Except for today. Today, people, uh, voice artists, have to build their own studios at home, record everything, and they send it in. Back then, uh, they have a, a ADR stage, um, automated dialogue replacement stage, a looping stage. It's also could double as the Foley stage. And they drop a mic down, you remove all the change from your pockets and anything that might make noise. And then you act your butt off in front of the mic, and uh, you don't get to use your eyes or your body. They weren't filming it until um, who was it? They filmed Robin Williams. Was it that they started filming so that they could get the um, mannerisms of the actor into performance? But they did trot me and Corey by the animators once we were cast. And they had character mock-ups and stuff and they you know were like, hi, hi. They also brought foxes around in front of them. So the animators were like, oh fox. Okay. Oh child. Okay. So um I have uh I I felt that Todd looks a little bit like I did back when I was eight years old. So Corey and I would record uh, a scene or two and then they take a break and animate those cells and then they bring us back about six months later and we would record the next course of scenes because a little time goes there fox and the hound is kind of two acts first act is all the young todd young copper and the second act is the older mickey rooney kurt russell uh todd and copper they wanted our voices to age up within the first act so that we kind of you know we're really infantile when we first meet and then at the end of the first act we've kind of matured a little bit we also didn't know at the time that um they were handing off animation from the nine wise men that had worked on pinocchio and snow white and fantasia to the new guys uh the john lassiters and uh tim burtons and uh so uh brad birds um everybody worked on fox and the hound including don blue who left Disney midway through production of Fox and the Hound to form his own animation company. And he took half of the animators with him. This halted production and distribution of Fox and the Hound, which was supposed to come out in 1980. And it was pushed to 1981 as they had to rehire new animators, train them and then finish Fox and the Hound. But it did very well. Um, At the time it was Disney's most expensive animated feature at ten million dollars <laughs> but it made 64 million at the box office just on its first release then it made more money on another release
0: i'm, I'm thinking was that was fox and the hound the the largest box office taking that uh, of a film that you've been in yes
1: yeah for me yes fox and the, hound is the largest box office taking it was about 64 million and then babysitting like 36 million the other babysitting like 32 million Toy Soldiers is down like 20 million, maybe something, hiding out. Um, I just broke even. Uh, Cheetah is interesting. It was uh, produced for one and a half million, sold to Disney for three million, and made 10 million at the box office. So everybody was happy. It wasn't the $100 million behemoth that Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was. And it didn't garner any sequels except for A Far Off Place, Duma, every other remake of the Cheetah, which Cheetah was just a remake of Born Free. And we called it born free, the sequel while we were on set.
0: So my final question for you, if you don't mind, what is the most, outno, like demanded piece of dialogue? Like what, 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 what do people want to hear from you when they, when they see on the street and they're like, oh my God, it's, it's, Keith Coogan, do that line, do this line. What's,
1: what's the most asked for? So I'm at a, uh, I'm at a funeral and we're out of town and, and, uh, we gather in the church. And after service, they go down to the church rectory and or underneath the basement, and there's you know little food, and drinks, and people are muttering about. And um, a guy comes over to me, and he he walks over all solemnly, and he goes, could, "Could you could you just say it once? Could you just say it?" And it was, "Dishes are done, ma'am." And uh, frankly, that shit gonna be on my headstone. Here lies Keith Coogan. Dishes are done, ma'am. And I'll take it. I don't get, I mean, I've got Thor as a homo and one stitch, but it ain't no nobody's leaving this place without singing the blues or don't fuck with the babysitter. Great quotes, but not mine. It ain't no. I, Sorry, my wife is a grammar stickler. It ain't no, no. <laughs> he said, I, if I can curse, I can use really bad grammar. Uh-uh. No? No. Mine. My wife does not like me using it. ain't no. <laughs> ain't got no time for that. So and you know and that's important because the economics of making art is it's show business, entertainment industry. Huh, let's listen to that. It takes a lot of money to make a movie. It takes a lot of money to make a TV show. The insurances, the workers' comp, just the uh, construction and union fees and taxes. Uh, it um, it's the most cost prohibitive art form on the planet, except for pre three D printing a real life Death Star. Uh, it it used to. <laughs> To make a painting, you need hundred dollars of art supplies. I could buy a $200 guitar online and teach myself how to play and create a beautiful song for 200 bucks. Uh, dancing is free, but making a movie costs a lot of money. so you have to be responsible to your investors that it can be sold that you know and if it can't be sold at the time, can it be good enough to be sold for 30 years? to cable companies every summer three cuts on video oh a blu-ray pressing of it yes so i have to say adventures in babysitting and toy soldier and don't tell mom and book of love and hiding out all of these movies um continue to be watched today which just phenomenal to me curtis armstrong booger said there's two levels of luck just getting cast in the movie is lucky in hollywood but if that movie is a hit or if it's something that people – that they're endeared to and they keep a copy of it just as comfort in their CD shelf, DVD shelf, that's something else too. So both. It has to have artistic merit, but it's also got to make its money. Well said. Keith,
0: thank you again. It's been an absolute honor speaking with you, and and thank you for your art. Thank you for uh, – Sh- the the hours and hours of entertainment that you've given me over over my you know over my life
1: um i oh stop it was my pleasure i love doing <laughs> it so you know i appreciate the acknowledgement uh thank you and um you know it it's also it's great for for me and the films just talking about it now 30 35 years later depending on which ones we're talking about um is it could people go oh i've never seen it oh maybe i should watch it well, they gotta go buy it or stream it somewhere, or all of a sudden they count a view on, you know, HBO Max or something like that. And that helps the production companies, it helps the producers, it helps the studios, and it helps me. It helps all the other the rest of the cast, all the creators from the set builders to everybody. Um, it helps pay our pension and health. Um, and so that is I think our responsibility to try to make something fun that you'll like. But thank you. It's really it's really awesome to hear. When you're not talking about your own
0: work, do you have any do you have a favorite movie? Do you have something that that you like to watch that like a comfort movie or anything?
1: Yes, I'm the last of the analog babies. I was born in 1970. So I remember rotary phones. I remember busy signals. I remember you called someone and it rang 11 times. They weren't home, and you had to call back later. This is pre-answering machines. We didn't wear seat belts in cars. We ate lead paint. I rode around in the back of pickup trucks with nothing holding me. A uh, load not properly tied down. Can you believe my wife has still not seen um, The Sure Thing with John Cusack? That's a crime right there, especially when she loves rom-coms from the 80s and John Hughes stuff. She needs to watch The Sure Thing immediately. So I am a huge fan of Jaws. I'm a huge fan of 70s, Auteur, Cimino, De Palma, Lucas. um, uh, Who's the one that wrote... The speech, the Indianapolis speech, Milius, Milius, my God, Uh, anyone who uh, could pick up a, a camera in the 70s, Coppola, find out that Kodak's making low light film and you don't need a lot of movie lights, which means you don't need trucks, which means you don't need Teamsters, which means we can go shoot a movie right now for Paramount called The Godfather and make the studio hundreds of millions of dollars. Um that was a revolution digital, it's the same revolution that the 70s had happened. Now you have and the magical moment was when the red camera became affordable, older models of the red became affordable and horror genre took off. So at that moment you had producers that could make a movie that looked really good but that also could be low enough budget to recoup in a genre market that anyone who loves that genre buys everything in that genre. It could even be bad or badly made. It could either have big stars and be badly made, or it could have little stars and be really well. Wolf Creek, great example. My God, what a terrifying film that messes with you. And the, I don't know if you like horror and the tropes of horror, but to have two final girls, now you're just messing with me. Um, it was a great, you know, it was a great time right now. We're seeing a possibility to have a 1999 again in terms of the great, there was 1939 with Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. Then there was 99 with Matrix and American Beauty and Office Space. So many great films in 99. There's about to be another revolution that's entirely independent films. I think we're going to see the best work be done by independent producers shot on their cameras, on their phones, shot on their phones and cut together on their Macs. And that's um You'll see it. You will see someone that goes, my God, that is a really well-made movie. Uh, Primer, good example. You know, Caruth makes a movie for whatever, eight grand, 12 grand, whatever the heck he said he spent on it. Uh, and that was all in post. And what a captivating, well-made, amazing movie that still nobody can figure out. <laughs> right, right. We need more primers. We <laughs> need more primers. Absolutely. Do you think we're going to see smaller scale um Well, boy, we already have um, Nolan leaving Warner Brothers. Right? Yeah. Do you you see Marvel? Marvel's toned it down to TV shows with um, TV shows with old sitcom sets because they're lying in storage and they don't cost anything to build. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Oh, uh, I'll give you an economic reason why a lot of '80s movies are being remade today. Okay. Intellectual property rights. Writers Guild of America, if you don't exercise an intellectual property and do something new with it, within 35 years, it reverts back to the original author. Hmm. So The clock is ticking on anything made from 86 Up. Uh, That's where they're going to focus and try to bring back any IP that they don't want to lose to the original writer. Because then it coals back to the writer, and they go, oh, you want to remake this? Well, I've got the rights to it, so if you want it bad enough. That's why Top Gun had to be made now. I mean, there was talk, but
0: it looks like it, you know, fortunately uh, that nobody ever did anything with it. But there was like discussion. I guess they were loosely talking about doing something with like Back to the Future. But Back to the Future, Princess Bride,
1: truly untouchable movies. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think one of the only ways to come at it is almost like Back to the Future 2 in that you can look at the same events from another perspective, but I don't think you can rewrite our film history from what is my favorite film moments. Don't you dare take Indiana Jones and put him over a pinball machine and rape him. Okay. Although I have to <laughs> admit, I really loved, uh, crystal skull. I loved it sitting in a movie theater, a bunch of 40 something year olds and their eight year old kids. And also the river rap scene goes down and I realized they got the mom and a pseudo dad and the, and mutt. And this is a family picture. Uh, Didn't realize it until that moment watching it in the theater with the rest of the audience going, oh, this is a a kid's picture. Oh, okay, They're different filmmakers now. They have kids. They have grandkids now. Got it. And my expectations went in line with what the movie should be. And I loved it. I love Crystal Skull.
0: I didn't really have much of an issue. I did. I did actually really enjoy how. Spielberg used the, the like the fridge, like the fridge bit that was in like the original ending from Back to the Future and he used it in Crystal Skull. Um, I'll need to revisit that. I haven't seen that movie in a decade.
1: Yeah, the uh, There's another one in Back to the Future on the marquee in the back. Doesn't it say a boy's life at one point? Or is that in Gremlins? There, there's a reference to a boy's life on a marquee. I know there's the atomic kid, right? Mm-hmm. Playing on a marquee. I have to find it, but um E.T.'s working title was a boy's life. And so when you find a movie that's got a boy's life on the back and a marquee, and it's a Spielberg picture, maybe Dante, I don't know. Could have been Gremlin, could have been Gremlin's. Um, uh, it's an- another nod to and I love that club. Oh my god, the Amblin Club. And it does, it includes Chris Columbus and Spielberg, um, Frank Marshall, Spielberg, and Spielberg, <laughs> and no one can make a movie like Spielberg does and even he pushes himself and can make something like BFG every once in a while which I frankly fell asleep in great marvelous technology He had two scenes in the middle the palace which was just a rip off of an illustration from the book that was fascinating but ultimately I don't think BFG and also come on retitle it You, you had to have played Kessel Wolfenstein as a kid or know someone who played Castle Wolfenstein, run these titles by your kids. <laughs> hey, I'm about to title this BFG. You know that stands for Big Fucking Gun? Oh, really? Uh, I thought it was... Yeah, no. <laughs> Don't name it BFG. No, but I love Spielberg. I will um, ride or die with Spielberg. Uh, I got to go in and audition for E.T. And he had a uh, cabinet, of battle zone. So he had dozens of video games around. And Battlezone was, you know, vector graphics. So it was lasers and you're in a tank. And okay, Keith, come on, let's read the scene. Hold on, hold on. Okay, Keith, let's go read the scene. Hold on, hold on. And I just was focused on Battlezone. I did not pass the test. <laughs> I also couldn't cry on cue like Henry Thomas. That probably has a lot to do with it. But thank you, for Stephen, for seeing me and meeting with me. And thank you to my mom for leaving me alone with this man. God knows what could have happened. I'm kidding. Spielberg is a sweet guy. Um, and uh, so I uh, I just will keep auditioning. I'll keep auditioning for movies that I would like, kind of like when I wanted to be on an E.T. And, you know, eventually maybe another babysitting comes along. Maybe it doesn't. I got the line to fall back on. Dishes are done, man. I do sell signed dishes. Go to KeithCooganOnline.com. Uh, autographs, etc., etc. But the plates, man, first autograph show. And a friend of mine actually comes up with a little blue dish and goes – He's kind of hiding it, like it's drug paraphernalia. And he goes, can you sign this? Can you just put uh, Dishes or Done Man on it? He goes, yeah, actually, that's a good idea. You should sell that at every show. So I did, and now sell them online, too. That's awesome. Fun fun gift. That's awesome. (laughs) Everybody needs a hobby. I've embraced the line. Oh, and you know who also has embraced the line? Joanna Cassidy. So for cult nerds like me and filmophiles... Blade Runner is seminal, and I was 11 when it came out. It was true science fiction of the highest acclaim and went over everyone's head when it came out, and everything you see today is modeled off of Ridley Scott's vision for that, and Sid Mead's vision. Joanna's amazing in the movie, as is Sean Young, and I've worked with both of them. worked with Sean Young and Joanna Cassidy. I'm getting close. I will work with Harrison Ford one of these days. But Joanna, she... um, She gets hit up more for I'm right on top of that rose than for any Zora quote or anything Zora related. And that really surprised her because she, you know, that's what a leg. You got who framed Roger Rabbit and Blade Runner and people are coming up to her with, okay, boss lady. (laughs) She loves it. She's surprised by it.
0: Yeah, I'm right on top of that rose as part of my like my daily lexicon. I use it all the time. Yep. My wife's in the background laughing. Yeah, I mean it's just something that that, <laughs> that I that I say.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, no, thanks for uh, letting me talk about this stuff. Um and uh i don't i want to see interviews with anthony of what he feels about daryl i want to see interviews with john Cryer talking about hiding out please reach out to the cast members that you love um from those films uh clinton from hiding out he still is his career's on fire right now Mm -hmm. we've lost sean phelan tim quill Uh, you know we've lost a lot of great people that were part of these movies um I've, I've lost people. Uh, uh, Christopher Pettit, main cast members from a lot of our films are gone, and um, that hurts, but it's neat to see him live on on screen and remember them and remember working with them. Hame, of course, will always be a heartbreak. Were you too close? Yeah, he moved in with me after we filmed Life 101, and uh, yeah, we were close. And um, uh, to see him on clubs and girls and people uh, phenomenal just to be anywhere near that you know I'd always marveled I was like I think I was shooting cousins and he comes over on my first day at work and he comes and crashes the set to say hi to Joel Schumacher because of Lost Boys and I'm like oh it's my first day at set and Corey Ham has to come and steal everything but I always just admired his work so much so when I finally got to work with him and be friends with him um I just absolutely cherished it. He's so uniquely, I, I don't know, what's the saying? Corey's Corey. And uh, there—and a lot of people that love him will share the same frustrations that they had with him. But you just want to strangle his neck sometimes. But um, I don't know. That's because you just love him and you want to protect him from himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's uh, eminently talented. And I think that we've lost... People that didn't have a really hard shield against um, the other things in the business. You'd asked earlier, "How come you've never seen me in the news for getting busted for something?" Well, because I didn't take the advice of my friends, who, in my career died down in the early '90s, said, "Why don't you get arrested in a high-speed pursuit? That. Was, why don't you get? Why don't you go do this?" And I'm like, "Why don't I just work and earn it? And why do I have to pull a stunt to get famous and uh, to see a lasting thing of?" oj still echoing with the kardashians today come on we're better than that Mm -hmm. i have no point i'm just rambling (laughs) (laughs) oh but i'd love to see a reach out because i know that there's a lot of child stars that that don't work or aren't in it as i am i don't care if i make money off of it i just love it i love the chase i love the work i love the experience of doing it I'm, i'm holding holding in there, uh, always and forever. Uh, but I know friends that have not and they've given up or they're out of it or they're just dejected and, you know, oh, it's too much failure. When well, you come in, you try one or two times and you give up. Um, you never give up. Never surrender. And so I would like to see people reach out and give love to those people that uh, now, before it's too late, not, oh, I wish we'd known, or oh, maybe someone thought or should have thrown them a bone. What do you want? A lot of these child actors have no education, really. They were kept out of school, maybe. They don't have financial education because their money is gone, and managers and parents robbed it from them. Um, they have no friends anymore because they don't have any money. They don't have any money. Sorry. Um, so they don't have any job opportunities. They, so what are they supposed to do? Well, show them some love. Show them some love. Find where they sell autographs. Find where they're doing an interview or whatever. Ask them questions. Cheer them up um i know they need it i am part of a real child at foreign child actor secret society group that the quarantine bunch is based off of most of the people in that video are in the real group um and i know that we've all shared that sentiment it would have been nice if people showed um you know cory Haim or uh, river phoenix or whoever jonathan Brandis a little love before it became too late yeah but we have their work, and we have so many other people still around. And so, yeah, show them love. And and just remember that, you know, for the kids today, they're working. And that it – yes, it. my grandfather warned me. He goes, it's cyclical. He saw his career die and blow up and die and blow up again. So um, to have a second career, give show business everything you got, but not so that's all that you have. Um, have a fallback if you can't – I don't. I'm totally screwed. So I have no choice. <laughs> no, I did sales for years. I could turn around and sell you your own phone to you right now.
0: <laughs> I mean, hiding out and um uh, Babysitting sitting and don't tell mom the babysitter said. I mean, those those are on. Well, hiding out not so much anymore. But like those were on like TV all the time. I imagine you get like like residual checks that are probably wonderful i like nice to get right
1: they're great i i call them you know better than a swift kicking the teeth you know many times they're not multi-figures but they're a nice steady trickle every quarter they have to close out every quarter their books and it takes some time to get to me so little air and maybe i'll get the money nine months later or something there's no like instant corollary but i will see you know i don't know christmas time i'm getting the summer money so um it's it's important though because we don't work every day we don't right. work Um, we don't work 48 weeks out of the year. Uh, we get two jobs a year and that's supposed to sustain us and our pension and health and our retirement and everything. So all of this goes towards retirement. Every time we get a residual, they still tax us based off of my 50% tax rate from the (laughs) eighties. So I only keep half of my residuals anyway. Um, I'm no longer in that tax bracket, but you're it's taxed off of when you made the money. So, um, But it's great, and it helps me uh, pay the gas bill and keep insurance on the car. You know, it really does help. Um, And I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for the people that are watching the content that results in those residuals. Now, remember, the entire cast is splitting 3% of the money generated off of residuals. So the cast um, does get enumerated. But also the producers that risk the most when producing the film and outlaying all the funds, they do well. They do well if the thing goes. Well, so support it. Let your cast support it. Um, put together a Blu-ray commentary. Print some more DVDs and Blu-rays. Put together streaming. Since the moving to streaming, where can I hit behind the scenes or commentary or produce that? Make it that something, you know. I know there's enough video files that want us. I always watch behind the scenes before I watch the movie. Chances are I've seen it in the theater anyway. So as soon as I get a Blu ray, I just devour all the behind the scenes. Then I put the movie on. My wife is baffled. She goes, What are you doing? You haven't even watched the movie yet. (laughs) And this comes from me having every single thing spoiled since I was six. I'd uh, auditioned for The Shining, so I knew what The Shining was about. You know, I'd auditioned for. And read so many things that then I saw on screen that it doesn't affect me. Spoilers don't affect me. I would love to know them because I want to see how these artists pulled off the plan, turn that sketch into a painting. Your spoiler is just the sketch. I want to see the delivery and the execution of it. Now I'm just
0: trying to figure out like, wow, what would The Shining have looked with Keith Coogan as Danny doing Red right around? That just that, that just would have been... Same haircut yeah same haircut yeah exactly that little jackie
1: coogan bull haircut mm-hmm. um it would have been me onto the game so i you know with editing and sound design which is amazing and shining they put some tension and anxiety into scenes that weren't there on the set so the kid doesn't isn't exposed to the terror full terror yes they have him running and hiding and things but he's not staring at jack nicholson coming at him with an axe with blood and drool down his face horrifying what's horrifying is the scene in the bedroom when he wakes him up that's horrifying what really happened in room 237 that's what's horrifying oh my (laughs) god what a great film the the fact that Kubrick could lock away secrets in his films that have still not been uncovered That still people are looking at themes and going huh, it's kind of obvious now when you look at it so genius obviously and very powerful it's no joke that shining is considered one of the scariest movies ever made is it for shock scares, jump scares, gore? Nope. Sheer horror, dread. That I might have been onto the game. I would have known what the end result is supposed to be. I would have known how terrifying it would have been. I wouldn't have been an innocent pawn in Kubrick's hands. I would have gotten tired of multiple takes. I go, come on, you got it. I already said the line like three times right. It's the frame right? Look at the camera. Did you get it? Are we in focus? Stanley, move on. Come on. We got the data now. <laughs> He would go, what is this kid? And I'm, like, turning into a production manager on set. I go, this is unheard of. We don't go past take three, Stanley. It's just the way Hollywood runs. <laughs> Stanley self finances, doesn't need Hollywood, so what?
0: I was trying to think uh, if you had done anything, like, any any horror or anything, but, like, you did My a tale. is the closest to yeah, Tales, from, Tales from the Crypt,
1: right? And I had a small part in Soul Keeper, which is a really great little demonic possession piece. I just played a tour guide at the Gettysburg where some say you can still see the you know, him writing today as they're doing a reenactment and there's actually a ghost walking. Mm. Never mind. It's a whole I play tour guides well. You play tour
0: guide. Now, recently I haven't I haven't seen this one and I feel bad because I've everything else that you've done, I've 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 watched a dozen times at this point in my life, but I still haven't seen because you were recently in like the Jay and Silent Bob movie, correct?
1: Yes. I have a cameo in reboot. Plus, I get name checked. Plus, Don't Tell Mom gets name checked. Don't Tell Mom gets quoted. And then Chris Hemsworth, who played Thor, quotes it. It's pretty phenomenal. I was through the roof. And thank you, thank you, thank you, Kevin Smith, for letting me be a part of the Viewisk universe. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It worked. His fans are my fans. And my God, it worked.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, I think we're going to I'm going to wrap up right now.
1: Yeah, thank but,
0: you. Oh, this has been awesome. And, uh, you know, tell uh, tell Gabe I'm going to be hitting him up and seeing if he wants to chat about real genius.
1: Absolutely. Sure he will. And uh, he's also just did such a cool, unbelievably cool project with cool people. Um, you've got. Yeah. Well, the last project he just got off of, like literally just finished rapping, and they had a few COVID scares on set um he i mean he plays this hitman in a plague mask they look like plague doctors but they're hitmen and just imagine a really nice kubrick style backlight key light shot of them dancing and slipping in the blood silhouetted and shiny with like vinyl and the production design of this movie is crazy and then they're barely taking it seriously with our on set. So the tone is gonna be fantastic. It's gonna look like um what was the one movie Revenge of the Wolves or it was a Tarsim film. It's gonna have a look that is of the Matrix underworld kind of gloss, the cell. A tarse film basically.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you gotta ask him about working on that because once again, jealous <laughs> I auditioned for Real Genius, but Gabe got it. Yeah, no. Gabe is awesome. Um, Jake, reach out to Jake Busey because, um, you know, I mean, you've got uh, Starship Troopers and
0: um, Frighteners. And, the Frighteners. I was literally watching that the other night. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, and Identity. Cannot forget Identity when it comes to Jake's work. So good. Oh, and um, and Contact. He's the crazy priest in <sighs> That's Contact. Right.
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: You're- yeah. Gabe, Jake Busey see what see what they're up to
0: (laughs) sounds good all right keith coogan thank you again
1: thanks a lot man take care be well be safe thanks for the time
0: and there you have it folks again thank you so much to keith coogan what an absolute honor that was for me like we're talking decades of nerding out that that you just witnessed right there i Everything that I said was fundamentally fact. I really did. I, I grew up watching Keith, um, and the fact that I'm even calling him Keith is kind of crazy. Because now I, I've, I've chatted with him, and he's such a such a cool dude. I I've really really enjoyed this conversation. I'm extremely appreciative for him. But yeah, how cool was that? And and listeners, thank you very much for for tuning in to another episode. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to Snapper Cinema. Bye everyone.